All right, we are back, and we're probably going to, I think, unavoidably take a dive into things that are a little more negative, certainly more negative than airlifting beavers into the wilderness. But before we go there, I want to pull some items from the oddball file, which we have extensive material. Now, you may have noticed, if you were paying attention, that there's been a recent revision of the color of Uranus. Actually, more properly, it's a, it's a revision of the color of Neptune. Now, the story is that back when Voyager 2, which is the only spacecraft that has visited both of those planets, swung by back in 1989 and took pictures. Actually, it swung past Uranus in 1986 and took three more years to get to Neptune, which, by the way, it was able to do thanks to a 1 in 178-year alignment of the planets, which allowed them to whip past one and get out to the other. Actually, the Voyager 2 spacecraft was able to whip past Jupiter and get slung out to Saturn, which then slung it out to Uranus, which then slung it out to Neptune, which is quite a feat. But at any rate, when they did the color adjustments uh, for the press uh, of both planets, they, they, they try and do the best they can, but they've decided in retrospect that they got Neptune a little bit wrong. It turned out a little bluer in the photos submitted to the press than it really should have been. Now that they've re-examined it, I think that Uranus is a little more blue, but Neptune is definitely a little more green. And we realize that such things do not make a big impact on society at large, but we are appreciative of the fact that scientists are always trying to get it right. And something else that astronomers were trying to get right, at least from this article I have from Sky and Telescope dating back to July of 2003, is the real story behind the discovery of Neptune. And you know, you really don't expect a kind of detective story on an item like this, but... Um, here goes. Said William Sheehan, writing in Sky and Telescope, newly discovered documents from the 1840s suppressed to prevent an international scandal between England and France and kept secret until 1998 are forcing a rewrite on one of the best-known stories in the history of astronomy. The discovery of the planet Neptune in September of 1846 is justly famed as a triumph of reason, hard work, and the brilliant application of celestial mechanics. The French astronomer Urbain Jean-Joseph Le Verrier recognized that slight perturbations in the observed motion of Uranus indicated that an unknown planet was exerting a gravitational influence. And we should point out that the planet Uranus, discovered a few decades earlier, and which, you know, took the world by storm, and made the astronomer William Herschel the most famous astronomer in the world, because the idea of another planet out there just was something nobody expected. Did he get to name it? It's funny you ask. He did try and uh, advocate for the name he wanted. Which was? I believe George, named after King George III. But cooler heads prevailed. Anyway, it so happened about this time, which was which is interestingly about uh, about one orbit of Neptune ago, that Uranus was just not acting right. First, it seemed to speed up, then it seemed to slow down. Anyway, Urbain Jean Joseph Le Verrier calculated where an unknown planet should be to exert this influence on Uranus which Sky and Telescope noted was an extraordinary feat when computing was done with pencil and paper. Apparently, 
Astronomer Johann Gall at Berlin Observatory pointed a telescope at the spot, and by God, there was Neptune. This tale also goes that John Couch Adams, a young English mathematician at Cambridge, had tackled the same problem independently and predicted the planet's position to within half a degree of the Verrier's position as early as September of 1845. But according to the legend, the English astronomy establishment ignored young Adams, letting his discovery slip away to the French. After the planet's discovery, a consensus seemed to emerge that both Adams and Leverrier deserved equal credit for the roles they had played. That story, however, conceals a fierce priority dispute that for a while threatened to become a major international incident. Few realized that the consensus story was actually a carefully crafted compromise based on selective use of documents. Only now are hidden papers coming to light that reveal the truth behind the politically expedient version. According to the University of London astronomer Nick Colstrom, the selective account by England's astronomer Royal, George Bedell Irie, was published within two months of Neptune's discovery. However, the Royal Greenwich Observatory's full Neptune file was kept secret from Aries' own time through at least the 1950s. Historians who asked to consult were told the file was unavailable. Then it seemed to disappear altogether. In recent times, suspicion fell on astronomer Olin Egan, who often denied having the file. But after Egan's death in 1998, a Lick Observatory graduate student noticed it among his effects in Chile. The file has now been returned to the Royal Greenwich Observatory archives at Cambridge, and Colstrom is studying its contents, including hundreds of letters. In contrast to the traditional story of Adams' wonderful prediction that went shamefully ignored, the file reveals that the real Adams was rather vague, and his predictions for the planet kept changing. At no point did he have the confidence to say, in effect, as Le Verrier did, point your telescope here and you will find it. Instead, Adams' predictions ranged over as much as 20 degrees, throwing British searchers at Cambridge University on a six-week wild goose chase hunting the planet during the summer of 1846. After the discovery of Neptune in Berlin, which took Gal and Heinrich Deres just half an hour at their telescope, the British, and especially Airy, got together a carefully selected version of events. Adams's mathematical vacillations were hushed up, and only his early preliminary result, which proved to be more accurate than later ones, was made public. The result was a remarkable British takeover. Well, they took over most of the world, so this is not surprising. Adams did deserve some recognition for his mathematical investigations, but Collistrom believes that what he ended up with was much more than was due to him. The Verrier protested at the time, but in vain. He never had access to the documents in the possession of the British. Le Verrier did receive many honors for his work and was later named director of the Paris Observatory. But, says Collerstrom, I think he was personally traumatized by what happened and ended up as a complete ogre and despot in later years. And now you know the rest of the story. And you know, this kind of reminds me of the more recent controversy over who discovered the HIV virus. It's pretty clear to those in the know that it was discovered by French researchers. But here in America, during the administration of Ronald Reagan, which practiced at best, benign neglect when it came to dealing with HIV. They wanted to say, no, 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 we were on it too. Anyway, 
I'm sorry to see the French get screwed over, scientifically speaking, uh, not just once, but twice, to which I say, sacre bleu. Well, some weeks back on this program, we talked about some of the mysterious goings on in Solano County, wherein for the past six years, a rather mysterious group called Flannery Associates has been buying up huge swaths of farmland. And after amassing about 200 square kilometers of land, it has gone public with plans to build a city and revealed the name of the project, California Forever. Discussing this, which we will now do, we're indebted first of all to Anna Lee Newitz, who writes a column for New Scientist magazine. Jan Sramek, CEO of the California Forever Operations, said he's been working with investors, including venture capitalist Mark Andresen and LinkedIn co-founder Reid Hoffman, aiming to build an instant community that will house nearly a half million people. This news dispelled years of rumors that the land grab was part of a secret military project due to its proximity to nearby Travis Air Force Base. But none of this has made Solano County residents happy because they worry that Sramek, a former finance industry superstar and self-help influencer, will create a haven for the rich that drains resources from the region without giving anything back. Sramek and a few colleagues have been holding town hall meetings around Solano County to talk to residents and pitch their still vague plans. Reports from these events are full of comments from attendees who express frustrations that Sramek won't divulge details of exactly where and how the city will be built. Instead of reassuring concerned citizens, he referred cryptically in a recent meeting to knowing things about regulations his detractors don't. In one session in the city of Vallejo, he spoke to KQED reporter Adin Bandelmundi, saying, before we ever started investing, we did a lot of research on the county. And so actually, we do know more about the county than almost any other developer that would come in here. When residents asked how the proposed city would get water and manage traffic on already congested highways, he said California Forever was working on figuring it out, which is nice to know, isn't it? Sramek framed negative responses as sour grapes from people who couldn't solve problems on their own. Every time someone says, I don't like your project, we say, okay, what's your proposal for fixing these issues? Because it's really easy to be a critic. It's really hard to build something in the world today. Noted columnist Annalie Newitz, the thing is, nobody in Solano County was asking for solutions like California Forever. She said certainly the county needs help with problems like water access and infrastructure maintenance and police corruption. But nobody expressed a desire for a sprawling luxury city for thousands of residents who don't live there yet. Ill feelings include a dispute with some property owners, and indeed locals are so resistant to the development plans that California Forever's Flannery Associates has filed lawsuits over land acquisitions, suing several people who didn't sell accusing them of conspiring to drive up land prices. These just sound like good neighbors, don't they? The columnist notes that perhaps one of the most curious claims by Sramek is that his city will not be utopian. And yet the closest analog to California ever might be the city imagined by Ayn Rand in Atlas Shrugged, in which industrialists led by John Galt flee to an urban utopia in rural Colorado. She notes that for many Solano County residents whose lives are about to be turned upside down by a new development, it might be more of a dystopia than a utopia. To them, it's as if strangers from Silicon Valley had plonked themselves down in a land where they don't belong and are trying to copy-paste a city onto farmland as if they were playing Minecraft. 
She concludes by noting, this approach has the faint echoes in the history of California settlements itself, where strangers from Europe violently pushed out the local indigenous people for hundreds of years, often in the name of building a better world. And from there, we must jump into a San Francisco Chronicle article by John King, which looked into not what's going on in Solano County. Well, it does look into that, but it makes a comparison to what happened in San Joaquin County with the community of Mountain House. Wrote John King, Most Bay Area residents only know of Mountain House, but what they glimpsed when descending Altamont Pass into the San Joaquin Valley. Row after row of close-packed houses stretching north from Interstate 205. They haven't visited the large orderly neighborhoods with blocks of faux historic houses clustered around community parks and elementary schools, or the old-fashioned town hall and library next to what else? Central Community Park. They almost certainly don't recall the rhetoric when Mountain House was conceived decades ago. Assurances this would blossom into a self-contained place with housing and jobs in holistic harmony. Noted John King, if such rosy visions sound familiar, here's why. They're uncannily similar to the rhetoric being used for a proposed new city in Solano County by California Forever, a company which is backed by some of Silicon Valley's wealthiest investors. Flannery Associates, a branch of California Forever, has spent $800 million during the past five years to purchase at least 153 parcels of land. The would-be developer followed with a website in early September on how the goal is, quote, a new community that attracts new employers, creates good-paying local jobs, and builds homes in a walkable neighborhood. The difference between the two is that Mountain House exists. Nearly 300,000 people residing on former alfalfa and cornfields 45 miles east of Oakland. In many ways, it is a success, from its school's test scores to the Central Park's scenic mounds of silver grass that rustle in the wind. But jobs are scarce. 20 years after the first residents moved in, the promised town center remains bare land. A supermarket didn't open until last year. The average work commute for residents is an hour by automobile each way, and most are bound for the Bay Area. More than anything else, the saga of Mountain House shows that even when so-called new cities are successful, they rarely live up to the promises made at the start. With roughly 30,000 residents, but only 1,500 jobs as of this summer, what was billed as the town of tomorrow today looks a lot like the town of yesterday's sprawl. He then quotes Jerry Camilos, the developer of Mountain House's College Park neighborhood, as saying, when you lay these plans out, you have to remember you're in the permission-seeking business. Although apparently he did not add to that. So yeah, naturally we lie our butts off. The article notes that where California forever was shrouded in mystery until last summer, the origin story of Mountain House is pretty straightforward. The lead developer was Trimark Communities, which in 1991 purchased more than 4,000 acres of freeway-friendly land east of Livermore and made the case to San Joaquin County officials that Mountain House could help contain the growth spilling over from the Bay Area without sacrificing good farmland. And the plans included 12 villages of 1,200 homes each, which would radiate from a K-8 through public school, a large park, and a neighborhood retail center. There'd also be a town center with 500 units serving as the active heart of a new community, read one planning document, complete with several blocks of shops beneath apartments. The plan, approved in 1994 by the County Board of Supervisors, 
anticipated 21,000 jobs and 44,000 residents when construction was complete. Boosters predicted that many of the workers would be in corporate office parks luring high-paying jobs from Silicon Valley. Tillmark's Dwayne Grimsman told the Associated Press as the first residents moved in, it's not a suburb of any community, it's starting a new town from scratch. Of course, that was in 2003, much later than promised following lawsuits by opponents and the inevitable delays as Trimark built roads, utilities, and waste treatment facilities. The homes starting at $360,000 then were expensive by San Joaquin standards, but a bargain for commuters from the Bay Area. So... Homes were selling like hotcakes up until the recession of 2008 when Mountain House went bust. The community, which included about 3,000 homes at that point, had the dubious honor of being the most underwater zip code in the United States. Values had dropped so much, the New York Times reported that 9 out of every 10 houses were worth less than their mortgages. Of course, as, as we've all seen since the great fiasco of the meltdown of 2008, Housing prices have bounced back with a vengeance. Anyway, the article notes that the neighborhoods in Mountain House were designed to include a pedestrian-friendly shopping strip across from the park, but it's still a vacant lot. Nor has Mountain House become an employment hub. As the population now approaches 30,000, as mentioned, the records indicate there are fewer than 1,500 jobs. The developers make no apologies for how Mountain House has turned out. They quoted developer Grimsman as saying, I think it's great, a very desirable community to live in. We're optimistic at the time we could draw tech companies and prominent businesses. It could happen someday. They did have to laugh at one of the, uh, the c- complaints that emerged from people that live in Mountain House that, boy, is it windy, which uh, shouldn't be a surprise to anyone who's driven up the Altamont Pass and seen all of the wind turbines positioned there. What I remember about uh, the area around Mountain House was that there were signs up everywhere next to the freeway advertising a real estate company headed by Richard Pombo. Real estate developer Pombo got fast-tracked when he ran for and won a seat in the U.S. Congress and was quickly handed quite a few plum assignments in committees. He looked like quite the conservative comer there for a while. Pete McCloskey made a name for himself back in the 1970s by challenging, and this is in 1972, challenging incumbent President Richard Nixon for the Republican nomination. His campaign did not go terribly well. If my memory serves me correctly, at the Republican Party convention in 1972, Richard Nixon, out of the 1,309 delegates, took 1,308. But the one he didn't get did go to McCloskey. Now, buried in the Radio Parallax archives is uh, the interview that Mr. Millen and I uh, conducted with Pete McCloskey. We highly recommend it. If for no other reason than McCloskey belongs to what is now an endangered species, the liberal Republican. And by the way, it was Pombo's opposition to the Endangered Species Act, which McCloskey had a role in getting passed, that motivated him to come out of retirement, and challenge Pombo for the Republican nomination for Congress. McCloskey did reasonably well in that contest and apparently damaged Pombo enough that in the general election, he lost to Democrat Jerry McNerney. Now, McCloskey's history reminds us of the fact that in politics in the United States of America, an incumbent president is rarely challenged 
for the renomination. Uh, something that is certainly circulating in America right now as we ponder the fact that good old President Joe Biden appears to be trailing Donald Trump in many polls in swing states. And while the fact that Donald Trump could even possibly be the Republican nominee reflects very badly on the American political system and sanity of the voting populace, it's also sad to note how little enthusiasm there is for the candidacy of Joe Biden. We haven't paid too much uh, attention to the attacks on Biden that have come from all corners, at least from all corners Republican. But I did stumble upon a couple of clips of the president looking into the microphone and talking about what he was going to do. And after viewing those, I came to realize why it was (laughs) the public is uh, lacking enthusiasm for the president. Anyway, as we said at the top of the program, this is an election year. We're going to be following way too much politics in the weeks and months to come. So I think we'll leave it go at this point, except to note that to date, nobody, nobody has accused President Joe Biden of stinking. Not even corn pop? As far as I know, not even corn pop. All right, the time we have left, let's take a detour into China, or at least some articles written about China. And these are not recent articles, and one of them is from 2008, one of them is from 2010. The one from 2010 was written by Tony Dokopul. And Isaac Stonefish, who many years later was to become a Radio Parallax guest. In this piece by Isaac Stonefish, uh, titled All the Propaganda That's Fit to Print, it addressed why it was that Xinhua, China's state news agency, was looking to be the future of journalism. And as we've documented on this program since we started 20 years ago, journalism has been in trouble in America. Most news organizations are in retreat. They've been shuttering bureaus and laying off journalists, something that the article mentions, which the Chinese saw as an opportunity. Turns out that subscriptions to all Xinhua stories cost in the low five figures, which compares with at least six-figure numbers for comparable access to the AP, Reuters, or AFP. The article quotes how sometimes Xinhua's not too bad. They were quoting a Kamel Ergodu, the China correspondent for Turkey's state news agency, is saying, in the Second Gulf War, they were very good. They got many things first. I used them many times. Well, for that matter, this correspondent used to check out uh, RT, Russian television, which is since, uh, since the war in Ukraine has been taken off the air in most uh, outlets in America, I'm sure. But even though RT was supported by the Russian government, when it was covering things not Russian, sometimes did a pretty decent job. When it did stray into politically sensitive areas involving uh, Russian politicians, such as the poisoning of, uh, <laughs> of people overseas by Russian intelligence agencies, their, um, their coverage on that was sort of hilariously phony baloney. The other article, in this case from 2008 from Rolling Stone, was titled China's All-Seeing Eye, written by Naomi Klein. Klein talked about how it was that with the help of U.S. defense contractors, China was building the prototype for a high-tech police state. This is in 2008, mind you. And although we made passing reference to some of this uh, on this program back in, in the day, I don't think we really fully realized uh, how ominous this truly was. The article talks about the vast number of um, closed-circuit television cameras that are being installed in Chinese cities and how facial recognition technology, which was developed in America and then sold to the Chinese, is widely employed to keep track of its citizens. 
wrote Klein, the most important element in all of this is linking all of the tools together in a massive searchable database of names, photos, residency information, work history, and biometric data. When the golden shield is finished, there'll be a photo in those databases for every person in China, 1.3 billion faces. What's interesting too, and what Naomi Klein writes about, is the fact that despite a strict trade embargo after Tiananmen Square, controversial U.S. quote, crime control, unquote, technology has found its way into the hands of the Chinese police. Klein reports that when she checked into a hotel in China and her passport was scanned, she asked, are you keeping information on that? And <laughs> the clerk cheerfully said, no, no, we just sent it to the police. Anyway, we should probably quote at greater length from this interesting piece from 2008, but I don't think we have the time to do so today, so let's just put that off. And instead, in the minute and a half, we have left briefly quote from a piece from The New Yorker by Amy Davidson Sorkin. This is from October 10th of 2022, which I can't resist quoting from. Sorkin starts off by referring to a, uh, a bill introduced in the Senate by Daniel Patrick Moynihan back in January of 1995, calling for the abolition of the Central Intelligence Agency. In fact, it was titled the Abolition of the Central Intelligence Agency Act. This came in the wake of the revelation that uh, FBI agent Aldrich Ames had been convicted of being a longtime mole for the Soviet and Russian intelligence. Actually, I misspoke. Ames was arrested by the FBI, but actually worked for the CIA. Moynihan at the time said that this case was such a flamboyant display of incompetence that it might actually be a distraction from the most fundamental defects of the CIA, in which he meant that the agency, in what he considered to be its defining failure, had both missed the fact that the Soviet Union was on the verge of collapse and done little to hasten its end. And boy, does this remind me of the fact that we pointed out on the show uh, years back that both future Defense Secretary Robert Gates and future National Security Advisor, and I think Secretary of State, Condi Rice were both CIA Russian specialists. Of course, back in the politics of the 1980s, nobody wanted to see that the Soviet Union was on the verge of collapse, at least not if a lot of funds were available to you to build up the U.S. military against this dire threat. Anyway, enough said. We are going to have to leave it there. This program was produced by Edward McMillan, who for many years, it must be pointed out, doubted Soviet hegemony. We plan to spend more time strip mining our archives in the weeks to come, so we'll see you soon. This is Radio Parallax, and I'm Douglas Everett.